Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Today, Perry and I sat down with Daniel Dow. He's co-owner and winemaker of Dow Vineyards. These guys are making world-class wines, and it's obvious in the conversation that he's very passionate about what he's doing. Right now, we do have the Dow Zoom tasting for sale on the website. It is four bottles of wine that he's going to walk us through later on in the month, the 22nd. That's a Friday at 630 it's very interesting. They're great wines. We think that you're really going to enjoy them. It's also really important that Perry and I have these people on because we really get behind what they're doing. We're fortunate enough to have people that approach us and we most of the time go after who we want to have on the podcast because we really get behind what they're doing. We like their wines. We like their story. And this is a great case of that. We love what Daniel's doing and we think that you will too. So we hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll see you on the Zoom on the 22nd. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Cheers, Anthony. Daniel, how are you? Very good. It's a uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. We have been uh, big fans for quite some time here, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to get to talk to you. Thank you. I feel the same. Thank you very much for the support, and uh, I'm excited about the call and uh, sharing the information about our winery, our story, and our wines. So I want to, uh, of course, I want to get into some of the uh, wine stuff and, and dive into that with you, but I'd really like to know where this all began. It's my understanding you grew up in Beirut. How do you go from Beirut to Paso Robles winemaking? Yes. So uh, we grew up, uh, my brother and I, in the first part of our lives uh, in Beirut, Lebanon, which at the time uh, was considered the Paris of the Middle East. It's a beautiful place, Mediterranean coast, mountains. Uh, it, it was truly, we had a beautiful childhood. Unfortunately, this childhood came to a halt uh, when the Civil War started and both my brother and I were injured um, in the war. We were actually the first casualty of the war. Wow. Uh, so my mom being from France, my mom being French and having obviously spoken French at home and had gone, had gone to French schools, we immigrated to Paris and to south of France, Cannes. We lived between Paris and, and Cannes. And um, so most of our youth was actually spent in France, uh, where we received our education. Um, when we were 18 years old, we decided to uh, come to the United States. We wanted to go to college here. Uh, we had interest in computers and, and high tech. And um, so we came to beautiful San Diego, which reminded us of the beautiful south of France, as well as Lebanon, with the, with the ocean, with the beautiful weather. Uh, and both of us attended the University of California, San Diego where basically I majored in computer engineering and my brother majored in electrical engineering. And that's kind of our journey uh, that took us all the way to California, all the way starting in Beirut. And then how, like when you, I, and I saw that you guys had a tech company, you sold the tech company, and then did you, I mean, were you already, I mean, because you know with the French background and all, uh, with your mother, I mean, were you always into wine? Was, was your family always drinking wine? You know, like, and my dad's from Abruzzo, Italy. There was always wine in our house from childhood. That's, yeah. I like to always say that there was more wine than water on our table on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, especially uh, living in the south of France, I, I truly, I don't think my mom even put a bottle of water on the table. It was always a bottle of rosé if you're thirsty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so uh, 
you know, in the same way, my dad was very passionate about wine, and um, my my first memory of wine, we were living in the south of France, and uh, I see my dad carrying boxes, and um, I came to see him, and I'm like, what are you doing carrying these boxes and stacking them up in a closet? What is that? And, I, and, and, and it left to really mark on me, because he looked at me, and he was all excited, like, you know, a kid at Christmas, and he looks at me and says, um, you know, wait till you see this deal I got on this 1975 Cheval Blanc. <laughs> and, you know, Cheval Blanc in French means white horse. As a 13-year-old, I had no idea that there was a wine called, you know, Cheval Blanc. So I looked outside thinking, did he just buy a white horse? Where were we put it? <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 this is wine. This is wine. And he would open a bottle of wine every day. And, you know, he would share a little wine with me. And, you know, I really would enjoy these conversations with my dad. I would see him get very relaxed. You know, you know, philosophical. He would talk about life. He would share stories with me, and these are these are hours that I would spend with my dad uh, at a very young age. They really left a mark on me. That really has fueled the passion for me to not only collect and drink wine uh, at a very young age, but to have that passion to become a winemaker. I think that that is a, a, a kind of a common theme when you find people who are very passionate about wine. Yeah, definitely. It kind of starts at a young age, and it really is a sense of community. I've said it a million times. Wine is so much more than what's in your glass. It's who's at the table with you drinking it. Um, so that's a that's a beautiful story, and, and it, I think, kind of bleeds through to, to what you're doing. And, you know, I've, I've talked about Dow before, and this, you know, saying this to you, it might, maybe it rings true, maybe you have a different opinion of it, but it almost seems like it's setting the tone for Paso Robles winemaking. It's, it's just a little, it seems almost like, I've used this term for other wineries in different locations, but it seems like it's trying to be a growth of California. It, it's a, a, a step above everyone else, in my opinion. Well, thank you. You know, we, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit of the story of, you know, my journey to become a winemaker and the question that I got asked probably on a weekly basis is, why did you choose Paso? Why didn't you go anywhere else? And the reality of it is I spent eight years searching. So when I was in my early 30s after uh, selling our, our high-tech company that we had founded, my brother and I, at the young age of 21 and 25, um, you know, I quickly realized in my 20s that my true calling was to be a winemaker. And I have to tell you, uh, you should have seen the shock on my family's <laughs> face when I told them, you know, even though I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a high-tech uh, kind of guy and, and I've been successful, you know, building a high-tech company, really my calling is to be a winemaker. And they looked at me like I've lost my marbles. Uh, besides my dad, who my dad was 100% supportive and he's like, go do it, uh, follow your passion. So um, I spent eight years searching for the perfect terroir and, you know, when it comes to terroir, as you know, terroir is about location, location, location. It, it all has to do with location and specifically, you know, soil and climate. Obviously, winemaking plays a big role, but soil and climate plays a huge role, which is why I describe location. It's kind of like your store. You know, if, if you were in the Mojave Desert, you probably wouldn't have a big following, right? Because people wouldn't be able to find you. So location is extremely important, especially when it comes to wine. As a matter of fact, as I'm sure you're aware, there are places in France where you could be, you could have two vineyards that are literally 10 feet apart, and one could be a first growth and one could be a third growth. So um, the one can make a big difference. So what is it that I found after eight years in Paso, or to be more specific, in the Adelaide district of Paso, because it's very different. 
that really has has made us go out there, plant the flag, and saying, 13 years ago, we're going to make Cabernet Sauvignon and wines that rival the best in the world. And people, I have to tell you, looked at us with big wide eyes, saying, "You guys are crazy. This is a Ronin Zin region." Uh, but in reality, we really felt that uh, Bordeaux uh, grapes would really thrive the best in that region. So, what is it that attracted me to that? Well, when you talk again about terroir, you talk about soil and you talk about climate. Uh, let's talk about soil for a second. Um, almost every vineyard in the old world, uh, be it Bordeaux, Burgundy, uh, the Loire Valley, Alsace, Champagne, uh, uh, the Rhone region, uh, it doesn't matter which region, Tuscany, uh, Spain, Austria, Germany, even south of England, they all share one soil in common. And that is a soil that pretty much defines the taste of European wines today, earthy, mineral, great acidity. Those soils are called in French argilo-calcaire, or in English calcareous clay. They're very unique because they work in tandem together. You've got the clay, which is the topsoil. It's going to give you the color. It's going to give you the bouquet. It's going to give you the flesh in the wine. But then underneath, there's a limestone subsoil, which really gives you that earthiness because it's very porous limestone where the roots of the vine penetrate and draw out very easily those earthy flavors and the minerality that really gives an edge to these wines. On top of that, these soils allow you to dry farm, which is something that, you know, in Europe is pretty easy because it rains pretty much most of the summer, I mean, regardless of where you are. Uh, but in places like California, where you don't see rain from April to November, uh, dry farming is a very difficult proposition. But these soils allow you to do that. Last but not least, these soils allow you to make natural wines. I'm talking about wines that are not adulterated. There's no sugar added, there's no acid added, there's nothing added to the wines that come from our estates in the Atlanta district. So those soils are very unique. There's only one bad news about these soils, and maybe you've guessed it by now. They don't exist in California. You don't find them in beautiful regions like Napa or Sonoma or Santa Inez or Santa Barbara County or Temecula or any of these places. You find them in a couple spots in the central coast, but the largest presence of these soils is on the west side of Pastorobos and the hills, basically uh, very close to the Pacific Ocean, around probably 9 to 14, 15 miles from the Pacific Ocean. And that is what we found on Dow Mountain, what we, what we nicknamed the mountain that we purchased where our winery is. We found these, this terroir, the soil, these soils that don't exist in California. So we like to think of it as the most French terroir or European terroir in the state of California. Huh. Uh, let's talk about the other element which is climate. Climate is extremely important because climate allows you to, you know, have more consistent wines. I mean, you can look at France, for instance, in Bordeaux, you have two vintages out of 10. I mean, every time I buy a bottle of Bordeaux, the first question I ask is, well, was it a good vintage or a bad vintage? Uh, fortunately, California is blessed with the opposite. Uh, California has great climate. Uh, places like Napa has great climate. And that's really what made them very famous for ripening achieving ripeness on Cabernet Sauvignon and other Bordeaux varieties year after year. So it gives a lot of confidence in the consumer where you get a bottle of wine, you don't have to worry too much is it a good vintage or a bad, bad vintage. You rather have to worry, do you like the quality of the wine? Do you like the terroir? Do you like the taste? Do you like the winemaker's work? So what is it that's so unique about our mountain in Paso Robles that, that really makes it makes it the climate extremely unique? Well, let's put it this way. 
Vassal is 614,000 acres. So how big is that? It's larger than Napa and Sonoma put together. Hmm. So if you ever hear somebody saying, well, Paso is hot, totally uh, dismiss everything they're saying because they clearly don't understand Paso. You could be seven miles from the Pacific Ocean. It is so cold that people have attempted to grow grapes and they failed. Or you could be 35 miles inland and it is so hot you don't want to be there, let alone grow grapes. So where our mountain is located is 14 miles from the Pacific Ocean and with the highest elevation in the entire Paso Robles region, which is 2,200 feet. As a matter of fact, it is the only place in the, in the state of California that's at 2,200 feet, but yet only 14 miles from the Pacific Ocean. What that does is it allows us to have the beautiful mountain fruit that's structured, but at the same time, receiving the maritime influence that comes from the very cold Pacific Ocean that's on the average 52 degrees throughout the year. So the climate, so how does our climate compare? Well, let's compare a few regions. Let's compare our climate on our mountain versus pastoral with downtown by the airport, to be more specific. And San Elena and Napa, which is known for making great Cabernet Sauvignon. Let's look at the last two years, 2019. Uh, downtown Paso received uh, 27 days at 100 degrees or more. So I can understand why people come to Paso, stay downtown, and say it's hot. Uh, Calistoga, by the way, saw uh, quite a few days at 100 degrees. It's very hot in Calistoga and Napa. San Elena saw 11 days, so quite fewer number of days at 100 degrees in 2019 than Paso. On our mountain, we saw zero, not a single day. Wow. And our average temperature, yeah, and our average temperature was dragging about three to four degrees cooler than San Elena. Now let's look at 2020, a very warm year. I'm sure you've heard of the fires and the heat waves. It was a devastating year for a big part of the state. Fortunately, we made probably our best wines yet, and we were not affected by the smoking. But let's look at the weather temperature. We received six days on that mountain at 100 degrees. Napa was 18 days in San Elena. Calistoga was way over 20. And uh, Pastoral was, was 32. So now you can see the, the difference. And we were tracking about four to six degrees cooler uh, per month than Napa San Elena. So what this tells you is we really have the perfect climate for ripening all these grapes, but without overcooking them, without causing sunburn, without depleting phenolics, which are basically the color because of the sunburn. So we like to refer to the mountain as a rare phenomenon because it is the only place on the planet where you find the soils of Europe and you find a climate that probably resembles Oakville and San Elena, depending on the year, in one location. What does it mean in the glass? It means that you have wines that are very high phenolics, a lot of color, a lot of structure, beautifully intense wine, but also they are made naturally. They don't bite you in the back of the jaw because there was a lot of acid added, uh, no color added, no sugar added. This is the wine that come from our state are made naturally, and that really makes for them to be a very unique proposition. One, one more thing to answer to you. You know, when we came to Paso 13 years ago, uh, people thought we were crazy. Thought, what do you mean you're going to make a cab that rivals any cab in the world? You just got to, you know, this is a Rhone and, and then, then region. Uh, let's fast forward. Uh, the last two years, Robert Parker's Wine Advocates Review, 30 wines were submitted. Uh, 21 wines received 95 points or higher for our winery. And we had the eight highest rated wines in the entire population. They were all caps. <laughs> so clearly the world is paying attention. Uh, we're today in 32 countries, 50 states. And we hope to be in 50 countries today. And the best part about it is European countries, which traditionally do not buy California wine, 
have been gobbling up our wines and buying pallets at a time but they're realizing that they're noticing that these are wines that not only incorporate the earthy flavors of European wines, but at the same time, you know, the beautiful color, the beautiful intensity that you get from ripe fruit. That's in a nutshell the story. Well, I can tell you for a fact that last ye- last year, the number one like wine for me that I tasted was the Soul of the Lion. Like I remember tasting it. I was at a, a, an event. This is all pre-COVID. And I'm drinking this wine and I'm with my dad and we're drinking the wine together and we're just like, oh my gosh, we have to buy this. And of course it's sold out right away. We brought in this year's, that's already gone. Um, And then another thing too that we've all in the store, all four of us were sitting around and we were talking about how we're going to go about our Zoom tasting, what wines we're going to use. And we had not had your rosé yet. And they brought in the rosé and it was delicious. Like we all kind of looked at each other and go, Oh my gosh! I don't care about the Zoom tasting. We are definitely gonna, uh, you know, we're definitely gonna carry this all the time. But we want to put it in the Zoom tasting because we think it's a remarkable bottle of wine. Um, I have to tell you a very unique story about this Jose, uh, if you'd like to hear it. Uh, you know, we grew up in South of France, so we were used to drinking Jose, and you know, the vast majority of Roses made in the world are not made in what we call in French méthode provençale which is a very unique way of making a rosé, where you don't use saignée juice, like juice you got from Cabernet and Cabernet Franc and Merlot and Pinot Noir, which is how most most rosés are made today. Uh, We use uh, Grenache grapes, and we basically perform a very quick press to just extract the purest juice. And as they do in Provence, traditionally, we blend it with 5% Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, They use either Sauvignon Blanc or Rolle, which is Vermontino, but we use uh, Sauvignon Blanc. I tell you, we released that rosé uh, about eight months ago for the first time last year. And you, you won't believe what I'm about to share with you because I was shocked. It is now the number one sold domestic rosé in the United States in five months. Wow. wow. And, and, and and if you, and you've tasted it, you see what I'm talking about. Uh, when you when you make a Métal Provençal rosé, the biggest thing that jumps out of your glass is peach. You know, peaches come out, out of the glass in a big way. That's because we use Grenache. So it's predominantly peach, and you also got the citrus flavors. You got a little hint of guava and a hint of papaya, and it's a gorgeous rosé. And we worked really hard on making a bottle that would, would give due honor to the wine. So the bottle is from France. It's made in France, and we screen printed so that because we know how it works. It's a warm day. You throw a couple of bottles of rosés in an ice bucket, and <laughs> if you're using a label, you know, two, three hours later, the water, the label's washing out. It's making a mess. So we screen printed it so you can put that bottle in that ice bucket all day and it won't wash out. We use a Portuguese cork, high quality. So we went all out and decided to make a real statement with the Jose. And to, you know, I tell you, I was I was shocked and, and pleased obviously that within five months it became the number one sold Jose in the United States and we sold out very quickly. Well, and, and then, you know, when I set it next to uh, our Provence Rosés that, uh, you know, high, uh, pretty high-end stuff, and I look at them and the color is almost exactly the same. What is your what is the skin contact time? Like, how long are you guys letting that skin uh, be there with the juice? So, great question, Perry. And that, that really defines the, uh, the quality of our rosé. Uh, if you look at traditional Provence rosé, they're made when we talk Provence, they almost look like white wine. They're very, very clear. And that's because in the traditional Provence rosé, you want no skin contact. When the Grenache grapes arrive at the winery, you know, it's like making, we, we, we perform what's called a champagne press. I'm sure you've heard of champagne called Blanc de Blanc, Blanc de Noir. Yeah. So you can make champagne out of Chardonnay grapes, which is called 
Blonde de Blanc, which is white wine from white grapes, or you can make it from Blonde Noir, which is white grapes from a Pinot Noir uh, a grape, which is a, a black grapes or red grapes. So the way you do that is when the grapes arrive at the winery, you do a quick press, not a long press, to, you know, because a long press is going to get more skin contact. It's going to absorb more color. So we extract the juice as quickly and as purely as possible so that there's no skin contact because we only want the juice. Um, and then it's fermented at very, very cold temperature to retain all the aromatics that are very important. This is a technique that's been very traditional in France. And, in France. and incidentally, it was Chelichev, Andre Chelichev, the famous grand wine master of California, that brought that technique to California for white wines. So we performed the same thing, very cold fermentations. And then, uh, and then we blend it with a little bit of white wine. Now, when you, when you see the typical California rosé or Australian or even from other regions of France like Bondol and, and the Rhone region, they're darker. So why is it that they're darker? Because they're not made in the Métaux Provençal. Uh, typically what happens is uh, there's a technique called signé or bleed in English. So when you make it a red grape, be it Cabernet or Pinot Noir or Cabernet Franc or Merlot, whatever red grapes you're working with, when the winemaker crushes that grape, they often pull out some juice to really create a higher skin-to-juice concentration. So the wine is darker, it's more intense, it's more powerful. Well, the big question is, what do you do with this juice? Well, in, in our case, if we do that, we don't do that often, we sell it for distillery to make brandy and, and, and gin out of it and other things. Hmm. But most winemakers and most wineries decide, well, we don't want to sell it because we're going to get a dollar a gallon, so let's make a rosé out of it. That is why they don't taste traditional, because the traditional rosé is based on Grenache grapes, uh, having the juice extracted as quickly as possible. And that's how we made our rosé. I was uh, reading an article recently about Telechef that you had said that the Grandmaster of Wine, and one of my th- thing I loved that he said was, uh, too many people taste wine and not enough drink wine. And I was thinking, well, so that, that's not me. I'm drinking my wine. I love, I mean, I love wine and I love to taste wine and, and identify wine and understand wine. But, you know, I, I took a quick vacation after the first of the year. We sat on the beach. We drank wine. We just drank wine. It was so fun. But, uh, um, it, and again, too. You know, I, don't know if he, I don't know if you know that, but he discovered Arthur four years ago. He did. Wow. Yes. As a matter of fact, he was hired by. Uh, Dr. Stan Hoffman, who was a Beverly, Beverly Hills cardiologist, and uh, Stan Hoffman went up to Paso, fell in love with the area, and he hired Chalachev. And Chalachev, you know, was one of these eccentric guys. I, I didn't know him personally, but from what I talked to people, he would like lay on the ground and taste the dirt and caress the dirt and say, <laughs> plant this and plant that. And he, he was always in touch with Terroir, so he knew that Terroir really well. Well, he stood on our exact mountain. Uh, in 1961, so uh, 59 years ago, any or 60 years ago, if you look at 2021, and he told Dr. Hoffman, this is a jewel of all ecological elements. And that's really how our mountain was discovered back 59 years ago, until we purchased it. I had gone through bankruptcy and a few other places that were not good. But when we bought it, there was nothing on it. And we planted it. Uh, and we built a winery there. So. That's a story. So it was actually Chelichev who uh, helped discover our mountain. That's amazing. I um I do want to circle back. You you're uh you're very uh, passionate about what you're talking about, and I love that. Um, we love that. It's certainly from uh, Perry, a, a little bit about us. I know our listeners know. Uh, just for for your knowledge, Perry's been 
uh, part of this wine store started it, uh, you know, over 20 years ago at this point, uh, moving locations. Um, I have spent my life in the uh, restaurant world. I'm a, I'm a sommelier on the floor. And this year I kind of came over uh, to the retail side uh, to work with them. Uh, Perry is my uncle-in-law. And we kind of uh, put our minds together and, and we've, you know, created this podcast. And, and we like when people are very passionate about what they are doing and what they're talking about. And you certainly are someone who, uh, who, who comes off as very passionate. Um, Thank you. When you talk about the soil, um, I would, you know, someone who is, I'm pretty researched in, in Paso Robles. It's, it's a very fascinating region to me. Um, the whole mountain itself, is that all calcareous clay? I know Paso as a whole has, I mean, I think it's close to 30 soil types, um, and, and they can be found all over. But the mountain itself, the, the full thing is, is calcareous? We own 700 acres in the Adelaide District. Uh, we started with 100. Today we own 700. 100% of them are all calcareous clay. And I'll tell you this funny story. I was in Burgundy, uh, actually had a tasting uh, uh, with the Salin, Romane uh, Conti, about four years ago. And I got to walk the vineyard, and I took pictures just of the top of the vineyard. And I came back home and took pictures of our vineyard. And I went around our tasting room. There were about 20 people working, working that day. And I put the two pictures in front of all of them. And I said, one is from here, one is not. I didn't even give specifics. It was just one is from here, one is not. Can you tell me which one is which? Which one is, is, is different? They looked at them, and they said, well, they're both the same. I go, they're the same soil. And that was the point I tried to make. And we have exactly the same soil as you find in Europe on our mountain. Um, I have pictures I can send you if you'd like. Uh, if you'd like to shoot me a text with your email, I'll, send, I'll email you the picture so you can see it firsthand. It's very, it's a very unique soil, and it's found in, in many. By the way, it's found in Lebanon. Lebanon has a great winemaking history. You know, with Chateau Boussard and 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 Kafraya and other wines that you know, you know, collectors tend to know very well. We also have the same soil there. They, you find it in in uh, South Africa as well. So Portugal, you find it in Portugal. So most of the world's vineyards are grown on this same kind of soil. And to find it in California was just a real nice discovery. That is, that's very unique and very rare. I, uh, I happen to be a big champagne nut myself, uh, and I, I love the calcareous soil. I didn't realize uh, that that was what you're, you're planted on. I had no idea that uh, the Dow Mountain was was uh, calcareous soil. That's that's really cool for me. Um, I do want to talk about also. You mentioned your uh, your cooler climate uh, being on Dow Mountain because people think you know when you think about Paso, you think about heat. You know, and and to your point, uh, people who who talk that way or or mention it might not be as familiar with Paso as others or. Or so on and so forth, but you you really do think about a diurnal shift whenever you talk about Paso Robles. It gets warmer in the day, cooler at night, um, and I'm sure to I'm sure that affects you as well on the mountain. But with it being cool and and that uh, that cooler climate uh, coming off of the water, uh, that to me explains all I need to know about what Dow is. Um, you do get some wines that I mentioned it earlier. It seem very much like like you're creating a, a, a first growth in uh, in California in, in Paso, um, so that's you know that to me that tells the whole story. 
But what I do want to touch on, since we're talking about the climate and we're talking about the soil, is that Pinot Noir that you uh, that you put out. It is something that we didn't even realize uh, that was available uh, for for quite some time. Um, we just brought it in rather recently, I suppose, and we were blown away by it. And yeah, it's- I, I don't know if it's a restaurant only product because it doesn't have a UPC code on it, but. Um- we were excited because, you know, we love the wines, of course, you know, of, including, you know, uh, uh, all the cabs, the reserve cabs. And then uh, even in the Zoom tasting, we're doing uh, the Bodyguard, which is a, a cool little blend I want you to talk a little bit about, too. Uh, yes. What I'm what I what I'm getting at here is, you know, wines from the central and, and you're. You're uh, labeling that as Central Coast, uh, which obviously makes sense. There's great Pinot Noir out of the Central Coast. But uh, can you talk about the, you seem to be very Bordeaux style. So seeing a uh, a Pinot Noir is very interesting for me. Thank you. You know, uh, uh, people often ask me, uh, when you're not drinking Cabernet, what are you drinking? And the answer, if it's not white wine, if it's red, it's always Pinot Noir. Uh, you know, growing up in France, you know, I'm sure you know that, but most people in France don't drink Bordeaux. Uh, most of Bordeaux gets exported worldwide. Uh, a lot of French, most French, drink Burgundy. So we drank a lot of Burgundy when we were kids. And uh, I love Burgundy wines. So um, while Cabernet is my first love, uh, as well as Cabernet Franc, by the way, and all the Bordeaux varieties, uh, I do love Pinot. So we decided to make a little wine from the Central Coast, and we're working with a beautiful vineyard. It's in Santa Barbara County. I know it says Central Coast, but actually the future releases will say Santa Barbara County. Hmm. And um, and we decided, you know, there are some beautiful vineyards that have close proximity to the Pacific Ocean, uh, and Pinot Noir really thrives there. So again, here, I think one of the things you'll notice is in an age where a lot of people are adding uh, Syrah and Petit Syrah and Zinfandel and all kind of different things to their Pinot Noir, we wanted to make a very Burgundian style, very much pure Pinot Noir with nothing added to it, no sugar, nothing. And that's what we created. So um, when you drink this wine, it almost is reminiscent of a Burgundian wine. Uh, of course, it's got the California character, having great weather, but uh, it's a beautiful region. The Central Coast has some beautiful spots that grow Pinot Noir. Incidentally, I make two other Pinot Noirs from the Central Coast. Uh, unfortunately, they don't go wholesale, but we can always get you some, so don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> one is from Solomon Hills in Santa Maria. It's sold in the tasting room, but we'd love to get you some if you'd like. It's a beautiful Pinot Noir that I've been making now for four years. Um, and uh, it's, it's a plot that we're working with that we get to dictate how it's managed, how the fruit is managed, so we have a lot of control over it. And another Pinot Noir that I make is from Gary's Vineyard, uh, the Pisoni family. Oh, yeah. That's uh, basically in the Santa Lucia, uh, Santa Lucia Mountains. Um, so I do make a couple other Pinots. If you'd like to taste them, I'd love to send some samples for you to uh, take a look at. They're very nice as well. But the, the Central Coast Pinot is really an incredible value because it's a pure-made wine. It's made in the most pure way. And it's very enjoyable. It doesn't bite. It doesn't scratch. It's not overly extracted. Uh, it really incorporates some great Burgundian uh, uh, character in it. Um, one other thing to talk about, Paso. You were mentioning about um, you know people going to Paso. You know, going to Paso, staying downtown where it could be very hot, and leaving there and writing that Paso's hot would be like me going to Napa for the first time and only staying in Carneros mm-hmm. where it's very cold, and leaving and saying, well, you know, I've been to I've been to Napa and Sonoma, 
And that is actually very cold. I don't know how they grow caviar. Uh, that would be the same thing. <laughs> but yet, I, I see it all the time by critics and, and journalists who come to Boston and they go, man, it's hot in here. Yeah, it's, it's hot when you go east. It does get very hot. But we also can be very cold if you go west. Right. And that's something that we as uh, retailers, we've been kind of having to work against when you talk to people who are, you know, big Napa hounds and you know they they love these cabernets from from you know oakville or, or rutherford and you know when we we put a high-end paso wine in front of them that's the immediate reaction knee-jerk reaction is it's so hot the alcohol is going to be so high and trying to explain that has been a, a bit of a challenge until we put something in front of them like dow and they come back and go what was that <laughs> you know it's 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 a very easy wine for us to open people's eyes with. And I can't tell you how many times we've said, you know, if you don't bring it back, don't dump it out. Bring the bottle. We'll drink it. We'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. You know, that's staking our claim behind that has been very easy for us. The bodyguard, the bodyguard, what made you decide to go with that blend just to find that blend sometimes i got to go to your site and remember because i know oh. it's a it's such an interesting little blend yeah so I, I'll, I'll tell you i uh you know steve jobs once uh you know released uh, the computer when he first released his first computer they asked him uh what's so different about this computer he said this is the computer for the rest of us so let me let me what we let me tell you what we say <laughs> about uh bodyguard it's the cult wine for the rest of us. And let me explain to you why. When you look at a quality of a wine, it's a red wine, there are three things that you really, you know, that gauge the objective quality of the wine. I'm not talking about subjectivity where two or three critics can taste the wine, one can give it a 99, one can give it a 90, and they can disagree over if it's dark enough or structured enough, etc. I'm talking about what is the objective way, real objective way of measuring wine quality. Well, you have to look at something called phenolics. Uh, and I actually brought phenolics to the Pastoralis region about almost 10 years ago. Uh, why? Because phenolics analyze three things. What you see, the color, what you smell, the nose, and what you say, taste, the tannin structure, the structure of the wine that will allow it to age as well or not, etc. So when you think of a cult wine, you think of a very intense wine. I'm sure you've had cult wines like Sinequanon and others. And the first thing that you know, you notice is like the darkness, the phenolics are just intense, balanced and elegant at the same time, but intense nevertheless. So uh, three years ago, 2017, my brother and I decided, why don't we make a cold wine that can actually anybody else can afford? Uh, so the premise of that, of that uh, project was to make a wine that has phenolics that are probably in the 0.1 percentile in the world. Hmm. That's a so intense. Yeah, and it's and really it's, intense one. And it's right. delicious too. So delicious too at the same time, exactly. So we picked two grapes, Petit Verdot, which is a wine a, a grape known for basically being very high in phenolics that can accentuate color and intensity and structure in Bordeaux wines. And some Petit which is a grape from the south of France that is known to actually in France it's not even called Petit it's only in California that calls it that. If you go to France and say, oh, I'd like a petit sirah, they look at you with very wide eyes saying, we don't know what you're talking about, because the actual grape is called Durif, D-U-R-I-F. So I decided to pick these two grapes, which most winemakers don't dare ferment 
and bottle on their own. The reason why is because when you're fermenting these two grapes, you don't know when you stop extracting the tannins. So you end up over extracting the tannins and the wine becomes undrinkable. Mm. What I've done in the last 10 years is I've created a phenolics-based system on my palate that allows me to know exactly when I can stop the extraction of tannins while the wine is fermenting. So I put that that uh, technique to the test with these two grape varieties, and the result was amazing. A wine that has some of the highest phenolics on earth, but at the same time is enjoyable and elegant, not overly extracted. And it's been a real hit, I tell you, because for, I don't know what you sell it for in Florida, but for an affordable price, an approachable price, you can put that bottle of wine against any bottle of wine that sells for two and $300, and it will give it a run. It will really give it a run. And that's really what we wanted to create, the cult wine for everybody else. That's, I mean, I think what you're trying to accomplish certainly comes across uh, for us. When As soon as we tasted that wine, we knew we had to put it on the shelf. And that was long before we even uh, were doing Zoom tastings in general. Um, so it's been with us for quite some time, and we've, we've turned a lot of people on to it. And yeah, it's definitely one of those wines where inside and outside, the packaging is really beautiful. Um and, I, you know, that was something that we, again, we ran with before we were going to knew we were going to get you on this podcast or, or do a Zoom tasting. So, uh, you mean, you, your wines are selling themselves to us. We don't need to look at a package when we taste the wine. We know we have something really special. And, and, and for us, that's easier to sell. You know, it's easier to get behind something that you really love. You know, that, that's the thing is my brother and I have always believed that our best messages in the bottle. You know, if you buy a bottle of wine and the wine is just okay, you know, you may buy it once or twice here or there. But if you buy a bottle of wine and it takes your breath away, you'll buy it over and over again. And that's really what has created this viral effect with our winery. Today we're the fastest growing winery in the United States. And people, you know, sometimes meet me and they go, You guys are marketing geniuses. I'm like, What are you talking about? You don't do any marketing. You <laughs> great wine. Uh, well, seriously, we have zero dollars in our marketing budget besides my daughter who runs a social media uh, <laughs> campaign for us. And, and you know, uh, the one other thing I was going to say is, you know, you don't find often uh, two brothers or two people that start a winery, and one of them is actually the winemaker. So I'm the winemaker. I make all the wines. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, people meet me often. They go, uh, who's your winemaker? I say, well, you're looking at him. <laughs> and they have a hard time sometimes digesting. I say, wait, but you're the owner, but you also make the wine. I said, you know, my answer to them is, why in the world would I want to, want to do that if I can't make a wine? <laughs> For sure. Uh, and, you know, my, I spend my life in the vineyard and in the winery, and uh, it gives me tremendous pleasure. Uh, I am I am consumed with the wines that I make, and that's the best way I can tell you. Is every time I put a bottle of wine out, uh, my heart goes with it, because to me, uh, it's being made with a heart. Well, again, Daniel, I think that that shows uh, you sound like you're just as wine geeky as we are about the soil and this, you know, getting your hands in it it really creates the best wine, you know, Uh, and it sounds like you have have really cultivated that in your uh, in your winemaking approach. And we really enjoy that. I do. uh, I'm going to take you up on having you send me those pictures. So I'm going to get your number when we get off of here. And, uh, and we'll go from there, okay? Yeah, don't hang up right away. Uh, I also just want to let everybody know, too, on the 22nd of January, this is, of course, the year 2021, uh, Daniel will be doing a Zoom tasting with you. Uh, you can buy the packages from our store. It comes with the four wines, the Rosé, the Pinot Noir, the Regular Estate Cab, and the Bodyguard. 
and that will be on the 22nd at 6 30. um we appreciate all the time danny and uh we i love your winery because it's a family winery kind of like we are we're a family store you know so uh love that you know i have five children by the way and four of them are in the wine business or studying to become winemakers so we're definitely multi-generational as well so then what's the other one doing I'm sorry. What's the other child doing? Four of them are in the wine industry. So, so the youngest one is 17 years old. Ah. Probably the best palate that, that we all have. Wow. But uh, my oldest daughter handles all the social media for the company. Uh, if you go on Instagram or, or or Facebook or any one of the social media venues, you probably interact with her, and she's super passionate about about her family and the wines. Uh, my second daughter, Lizzie, uh, made wine with me at 17, graduated from Cal Poly. She decided to go to Europe to get three masters. Uh, hopefully next uh, this year she'll be coming back to make wine with me in the fall after getting her three masters from uh, the University of Bordeaux, from Tarragona, and from Portugal as well. Wow. My uh, third child, uh, Anna, is manages uh, the vineyards for us. My fourth one, uh, my son, Joseph, is getting his winemaking degree uh, as we speak at Washington State University, uh, really up-and-coming grade school. Where all the, actually the Davis professors left and went there because they were funded by a big winery. So you know we're multi-generational. We, we love drinking. I spoke to my family, but we all get together and geek out for a few hours about wines and vineyards and and winery and and taste wines. It, it's uh, it's something that really is, is incredible. Really love it. We love it. Well, we love it. We love the story. We love the wine even more. Thank you again so much for coming on, and we can't wait to see you later on in the uh, month with the Zoom tasting. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We appreciate it. Cheers, Anthony. Cheers. And there you have it, another really fun episode for us to do. Again, that Zoom is going to be on the 22nd. That's a Friday at 6.30. We hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed doing it. We have some really fun podcasts coming up. Stay tuned, and we'll see you then. Cheers.